0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
1: I'm Eliza Barkley, Box's science, health, and climate editor. This April, our podcasts are teaming up to cover some of the most important issues threatening life on Earth. From sustainability to biodiversity to straight-up cool things about the natural world, we'll focus on our planet and its limits in episodes throughout the month. Tune in to Today Explained, Vox Conversations, The Weeds, Unexplainable, Worldly, Future Perfect, and Vox Quick Hits. Want to listen to all the shows? Find them at vox.com slash EarthMonth.
2: Climate change is an incredibly difficult problem to solve. It requires lots of different countries coordinating to make an unprecedented shift in the global energy economy. Even if you can get all of these countries to agree, in theory, to something like the Paris Climate Accords, it's a lot harder to get them to change fast enough to avoid catastrophic warming. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to explore some of the biggest barriers that make a clean energy transition so difficult in the coming years, in this critical time period. We are going to talk about the country of Nigeria, which embodies two of the biggest issues, the fact that many countries rely on the production of dirty energy in order to sustain their economies, and the fact that many poor countries need lots and lots of energy to get out of extreme poverty and save their citizens from pretty awful conditions. And yet, doing that without any kind of significant fossil fuel increase has never, ever happened before. I'm Zach Beecham here, as always, with Jen Williams and Alex Ward.
1: Hey. Wait, so
2: we're not talking about the Super League. Sorry, Alex. No, we're not talking about the Super League. Because you, you may know, listeners, that this is Earth Day, actually, when we're recording this. And we're doing a whole Earth Week thing on the Vox Media Podcast Network, where all of our different shows are using our areas of expertise to talk about the multifaceted issues affecting the environment.
1: Earth Week!
2: Yeah. I, I'm glad that we've introduced singing into the show. Yeah, you know, in the past few weeks periodically.
3: I believe I've introduced singing long before the past two weeks.
2: <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's we fair. mostly that put that at, at the end and hide it <laughs> so no one has to listen to it. And there's a reason for that. Uh oh man, sorry, Alex, I didn't mean to be so mean. You don't get Super League, right? And and then I make fun of your singing voice. I feel really bad.
3: My Earth Day's off to a great start.
2: Also, you got left out of our producer's dream last night. The Jen and I. I were know friends. what's going on. After the whole Tony Flags thing. Come on, man. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, we're 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 going to talk about uh, about climate change now, um, so we can be in sync with everybody else. And you know, it's worldly, so we want to talk about this from a really global lens. But we're going to focus on Nigeria uh, and and use it as a lens to talk about some of these big problems because it is in many ways, sort of the epicenter of a lot of climate-related discourses. It's a country that will be significantly affected by climate change. It's a country that has the largest number of people in extreme poverty anywhere in the world and hence is really needing some kind of better energy solutions. And it is a pretty significant oil-producing country. And the first half of the show, that's what we're going to talk about. So, Jen, why don't we discuss a little bit Nigeria's oil production capacities and how that's become really important to the country's economy.
1: Yeah. So Nigeria is the world's 17th biggest emitter of greenhouse gases in 2015. That's the second highest in Africa after South Africa. And that's in part because the country's economy is really closely tied with oil and gas exports. So basically profits from petroleum exports currently account for about 86% of Nigeria's total export revenue. It's a huge part of its economy. It makes up a massive chunk, like 70% roughly, of the government's entire revenue. So yeah, oil and gas production is a huge cornerstone of Nigeria's economy. But at the same time, as you kind of mentioned, Nigeria describes itself as a country that is, quote, considerably impacted by climate change. It also kind of paradoxically has one of the highest rates of energy poverty in the world, meaning like, the number of people who go without energy for a significant period of time so they you know the country suffers from chronic power cuts a lot of people basically rely on on biogas which is sort of a fancy word for burning wood <laughs> and, and other biological material so you know a lot of people just burn wood and and animal waste and other things for cooking and for heating in their homes so that leads to a ton of really bad outcomes. So pollution, there's a lot of indoor air pollution because of that, so a lot of bad health outcomes. Also deforestation because if you're burning wood, you got to cut it down from somewhere. So it's like this really complicated picture here. They they don't have their own energy very much because they mostly rely on natural gas and they export a ton. And then at the same time you know, like I said, they're highly impacted by the effects of climate change, in particular, like extreme heat, drying up of lake beds, things like that. So it's kind of like right at the core of a lot of these different issues that we see. And, you know, it is trying just like many other countries to, you know, make commitments to address climate change. But at the same time, that's really hard because what do you do when, you know, a huge chunk of your economy is based on literally extracting and exporting fossil fuels. I want
3: to widen the aperture a little bit here, too, because we have to consider that, you know, these exports, these oil exports that have benefited Nigeria in terms of its economy, right, the thing keeping in line are are a gift and a curse. Um, The gift is it's bringing in money to Nigeria. This is a country that is, you know, going to be the third most populous by around 2050, which, you know, surpassing the United States, which is currently the third most populous country, and then perhaps, you know, even going as high as second by uh, the end of the century. So there's a lot of people here and so when you're considering like you're you're the government you're thinking we just need to build our economy we just need we just need money 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 because um, we have a lot of people we need to take care of um, you know relatively soon you're going to rely on the thing you have, which is oil exports. It's a curse in two sort of ways. One is, to use the, you know, the political science term here, that the resource curse, one problem in Nigeria is when you rely on a certain industry, particularly a resource that you that you can, can, you know, have and export, you're not really going to diversify your economy. You're going to rely on sort of one thing. This is a problem, by the way, that affects a lot of countries, not necessarily, um, yes, in, in energy, but also if you think of, like, some southern European countries, they basically rely on tourism. Um, and when, like, COVID hits... You know, and those countries can't have tourists come. Well, they take massive, massive hits. Um, so this is a problem that's affected Nigeria, of course, and a bunch of others. And then the other curse here is that, well, when you're exporting oil, you're going to make climate change more likely. And as Jen rightly noted, you know, the deforestation, desertification, all of these issues have exacerbated a lot of Nigeria's problems. Uh, listeners may remember that there is a terrorist group out there called Boko Haram, and. One of the ways that Boko Haram was able to gain so many people in its movement is because, some, some experts would cite, is, is because of climate change. Uh, basically, a lot of lakes dried up, as Jen mentioned. Arable land went away. There was aridity rose. And a lot of people, especially in the northern part of Nigeria, which used to have around 50% of the population, it's a lot scarcer now. Uh, but at the time, they they lost their livelihoods. They lost their ability to you know make money and, and food for themselves. So what did they do? Um, they turned to the only kinds of institutions that could help, which was this terrorist group that was looking to recruit and provide livelihood and meaning and, and funding and, and, and something to do. And so it's not the only reason why Boko Haram grew, but it is a reason why. And this just sort of, to open the aperture even more, is a, is a considerable problem when you consider climate change, especially in, in vulnerable regions when, you know, as, as people perhaps lose livelihoods or have their, their lives upended, they're, they search for something. And this is this has always been a concern for national security folks is that, you know, the situation might worsen in certain countries because of climate change. You might see a rise of extremists and people fighting over resources, which I think is an, an over-exaggerated claim. But like, these are the things that are out there. So these are the problems, um, you know, that Nigeria has to contend with right now, let alone into the future. And it's a, it's a massive, massive problem for any government to solve.
1: Yeah, I mean, for most of human history, most of our wars, including today, have been fought over natural resources like water and land, right? That's it's one of the the primary impetuses for people to go to war, is to try to get more resources or to try to defend their own resources. So um, I just want to add one quick thing on the Boko Haram issue. They also do a lot of stealing of oil to help finance their operations. Exactly. So Nigeria is also losing money in that way. Um, other armed groups and, and just people are, are a lot of. There's a lot of theft of oil, losing billions of dollars every year. So, like, oil is kind of at the center. Oil and, and fossil fuels in general, the center of a lot of issues for Nigeria.
3: I, I didn't mean to say this in my little monologue there, which is because um, I don't. I don't want to give Nigeria short shrift. It is diversifying its economy. It's got a massively growing tech sector now, which is accounting for quite a bit of its GDP. So N- Nigeria is is contending with this and doing a lot of stuff to to get away from just oil, but. All this to say is that oil is still the big deal.
2: The problem is that you can't, when you've developed a significant oil sector, move away from it very easily, even if you want to. And I don't really think the Nigerian government wants to, right? Like, given their dependence on oil right now, they can't, like some uh, international activists would like them to do, just leave large chunks of it in the ground, right? They just can't do that in the immediate term if the government wants to stay in power because the amount of job loss – and economic catastrophe that this would cause would lead them to be voted out. But there's also a longer-term problem, right? Like, as Alex, as you just suggested, the Nigerian government does recognize that climate change will be a disaster for them and does want to contribute to the global fight against climate change. But, like, the, the nature of an oil economy makes that difficult because you have really established interests, both in the country and internationally. And I do want to get into the sort of global corporate part of it in a minute because it's really important in Nigeria in particular. But domestically, you have lots and lots and lots of wealthy people and less wealthy people who depend on oil for their livelihoods who who represent a very, very powerful lobby in any country or if not organized lobby in the sense that we understand it in Washington like a K Street firm, an interest group that exerts significant influence over the government that will block efforts to leave oil in the ground or, in general, move rapidly and swiftly away from oil production as a significant part of the economy. And you also have lots of people who benefit from the corruption associated with the oil industry, which is a common thing in a lot of oil-producing countries. But in, in Nigeria, is a notable problem. You know, people get kickbacks from oil production. They figure out some way to worm themselves into benefiting from this massive oil extraction apparatus. And then those people who aren't necessarily, right, like oil people, but are people who are benefiting from the existence of a semi-corrupt oil establishment, also have an interest in preventing a significant move away from an oil extraction and exporting economy. Overall, right, this what's happening in Nigeria is not unique to Nigeria in that sense, right? It's even worse in some other countries, like Saudi Arabia, whose entire economy is based on oil, yeah. and to a lesser degree in the United States, where oil and gas is a significant production. Now, corruption isn't as much of a problem here, but you still and have a coal. significant- And coal, yeah. You still have the you know these familiar issues with lobbies preventing or limiting or blocking legislation aiming to cut down on oil, gas, and coal production. So it really- is very difficult. And it's especially difficult when you have a country that has, uh, you know, an armed conflict problem, a significant one, and a a weaker state than what you'd see in either the United States or Saudi Arabia.
1: Yeah. And I want to, you know, touch back on kind of a point you flicked out a little bit, which is the the government's perspective here. The environment minister has basically acknowledged, not necessarily, you know, they have mentioned things like, yes, they're aware of like climate change and the, you know, It is impacting their own people and that pollution in particular has cost lives and reduced quality of life, et cetera. But even more, kind of fundamentally, the energy minister often talks about the fact that essentially the world is also moving on from fossil fuels and that he is very much aware that as major importers start moving towards preferring more green energy and not importing and not using as much fossil fuels that means they're not going to have anyone to sell it to. And so the environment minister has been very open about this. His name's Mohammed Mahmoud Bakr. He is, you know, saying he doesn't essentially see a long-term future for oil, that its days are numbered or its years are numbered, and that he is aware of, of the need to transition. And yet, when you look at what has actually been done, right, like Nigeria has made these, you know, pretty ambitious, relatively speaking, climate pledges, including the Paris Climate Accord targets, things like that. But they haven't particularly followed through on a lot of it, like developing its solar energy sector, et cetera. Like, as of 2018, just around 18% of the country's electricity came from hydropower, and that was the largest source of all of its kind of mixed, you know, low-carbon energy. So solar has not really been followed through on. They they continue, like, to try to make these commitments – but it's not happening. There's no progress. And part of that, according to analysts, is that the government banking to actually develop these resources is lacking. And, you know, subsidies have historically gone to the fossil fuel industry. They very recently, the government made a, a pretty surprising announcement that they were going to cut fossil fuel subsidies, which is like a really big deal. But even then, you know, Muhammadu Bahari, the president of Nigeria, and this is going to get into something I think we'll talk about in the second half a bit more, but he has essentially said like part of their, their climate plan is like, we need international financing to help us with this. Like we will do, we will go up to X kind of, you know, commitment, but we will do a lot more if we can get some more international financing to help us make these investments, you know, to help us transition. And, and they've been very clear on that. And there are some, some mechanisms that are trying to do that, the UK and the EU, in particular, has provided a lot of kind of climate financing, as it's as it's called, millions of dollars in grant aid to develop energy policy, improve preparedness for extreme weather events, and things like that. But you know, Nigeria, like a lot of developing countries, are very much saying, "Look, you, you know, big powerful developed economies that got wealthy on you know extracting uh, fossil fuels and using fossil fuels, now you're telling us to stop doing that." Well, okay. Help us out because you made a lot of money and we're trying to survive here.
2: That's a theme we're going to pick up a lot in the second half of the episode. It's also worth noting that the international involvement in Nigeria's economy isn't, you know, always beneficent. Um, Imagine that. uh, One of the sort of more famous incidents uh, in Nigerian history relating to oil uh, is the execution of an activist named Ken Sarawiwa, who led a, a protest movement of the Ogoni people, one of the many ethnic groups in Nigeria. And this one was particularly affected by the pollution created by the oil industry in the Niger Delta. So the, the government, which at this point was quite autocratic uh, when this was happening, arrested Sarawiwa and other activists and eventually executed them on, on fairly flimsy grounds. And there's a, a running debate over the extent to which the Shell Energy Corporation was involved in this particular incident. Shell obviously denies that they gave the government the green light to execute Sarawiwa, but uh, there's also some significant evidence compiled by Amnesty International in a a relatively recent report uh, that Shell was like, look, Nigeria, we don't want to deal with these activists. They're creating a lot of trouble. Costs will be really high as long as they are presenting problems for the oil industry in our area, and so it's not that they were saying go kill them. They were saying if you you just have to deal with them if you want our money and our help in exploiting your oil, and we don't really care how you do it. That's the the argument anyway. Uh, it seems anyway the the case presented by Amnesty seems pretty persuasive to me. What that suggests, that that particular incident, is that international oil conglomerates, who sometimes do talk a big game about getting into renewables and trying to shift towards more climate-friendly policies, have a really powerful vested interest in ensuring that they continue to have access to oil resources in countries where they have contracts to develop them. And... You know they they can't facilitate murder in the United States as easily. They can try, but it's much harder when you have a significant level of scrutiny. But when you're operating in a country with uh, less of a developed infrastructure and less international press attention and a government that's more susceptible to bribes, corruption, et cetera, then it's easier for you to put some pretty horrific kinds of pressure on them. And now imagine that that government is trying to transition away from oil altogether, and you can imagine what sorts of pressure you might end up getting from an international oil industry that wants to preserve their access to resources in the country.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, in even less like overtly sinister way, <laughs> right? Like these multinational oil companies have done a lot of damage, you know, just In terms of oil spills, right? So in the Niger Delta, which is like the end point of the river Niger in in southern Nigeria, that region saw more than 12,000 oil spill incidents from 1974 to 2014. Uh, It's estimated that during that time, 40 million liters of crude oil spilled into the Niger Delta each year. And there was an investigation by Amnesty International, again, uh, who found that that Shell and an Italian oil company were responsible for most of those spills. Right. And so there have been some attempts to get them to pay for it. There also ends up being a lot of fighting over, you know, how that money is going to be dispersed, et cetera, whether that money ends up actually going to where it's supposed to be, uh, whether they're paying enough, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, like I said, even from like a less like literally murdering activists or allegedly, these companies have done a lot of environmental damage that, you know, they are reaping all the profits from. And, and they're not the ones that have to particularly deal with that, right? It's the communities who live there who are stuck, you know, having a polluted river and, you know, damaged wildlife and and biodiversity, et cetera. Meanwhile, these companies just rake in money. Um and the amounts that they give are you know, compared to their profits are are pretty minuscule in terms of, you know, restitution. So so I think that's another aspect that's really important to understand when it comes to the international kind of exploitation of resources there, here.
3: There's a book I read a while ago, and it changed my views on on sort of- Life. No, I wish. Um, my my views on life have stayed the same. Uh, but uh, it's called Private Empire, and it's a it's a book about the history of ExxonMobil by Steve Cole. And I'm not going to get into ExxonMobil, but the, I only, I bring this up, because I think we actually weirdly underplay the power of these organizations in this grand scheme of things. So one of the main things you learn from the book is that if ExxonMobil were a country, it would be the 41st biggest economy in the world. <laughs> like it is the second largest American company, I believe, or maybe third. It's up there, but it's like near Walmart and Amazon. If it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just insanely huge. And uh, when you know, when Rex Tillerson was nominated to be Secretary of State, who, funny enough, basically w- you know, was the CEO of ExxonMobil, there were people basically saying at the time, like, if the US has anything akin to a Secretary of State outside of government, it is the CEO of ExxonMobil. I mean, Tillerson was meeting, you know, Putin and and, and a bunch of other world leaders. And this was the kind of influence, the kind of access that that people like Tillerson and these these organizations have. And so when we, when we have these conversations about oil exports and, you know, companies trying to buy land in, in um in countries like Nigeria or elsewhere like we're not just talking about you know pretty deals between like two equal parties like ExxonMobil has a lot of sway or a shell has a lot of sway when they go meet with Nigerian governments or elsewhere and so I think that this is I know we'll talk about this a bit in the second half but like we the, our conversations usually revolve around governments and they revolve around you know what are, the, what are what are their plans how many emissions are they going to cut and of course this is like, you know, the private sector exists. They are major players. Right, right now, as we're speaking, there is a leadership summit on the climate that President Joe Biden put together. 40 world leaders, Xi Jinping, Putin, uh, Justin Trudeau. And they're talking about, look, here are, the, here are our targets. Like in the U.S., we're going to cut, apparently, emissions by 50 to 52 percent uh, based on 2005 levels by by the end of the decade, 2030. And like, that's all well and good. But you have to rely on companies as well and private sector people following that kind of behavior, and so I, you know, when we talk about Nigeria. We need we need to be very careful when we're talking about like what the government can do, what what people can do, what other outside organizations can do. But at the end of the day, we have to be very clear that like the clout of private industry of organizations like this, they are also leading the way, and they need to be a part of the table and conversation as well.
1: Unfortunately, <laughs> big solar is not quite as big right. a player. As big oil. Uh, I'm not sure there is a big solar. I think it's the sun. Um, Yeah, it is the sun. That's the one. But, you know, the thing is, like, you know, more seriously, like, that is an issue, right? That a lot of the investment in solar, you know, it's not like it's someone can essentially, like, export a resource. Like, a lot of this has to come from government funding or, you know, other, you know, revenue streams to local communities to develop solar infrastructure, right? There's not like a big company that's going to move in and be like, oh, it looks like they got a lot of sun here, going to go ahead and make a lot of revenue from that. Like that's not, it's just not how it works.
3: Sun discovery. Um,
1: and, right. I mean, I, it, that's the thing. And, you know, and Nigeria does have a lot of, you know, abundant kind of natural resources that would make it particularly well suited for greener energy sources. But Again, it costs money to do that. It also costs jobs, right? Like it's not that the oil is just, you know, being kind of extracted and sold by like robots here. Like those are people's jobs. Those are people who are working in those industries. And so if you're going to weaken those industries and move away, those people will need to figure out how to have jobs somewhere else. And so that's the kind of you know just transition that that people talk about. And when we talk about climate change policy is that, you know, making sure that entire, you know, sectors of of the economy of jobs don't, you know, end up completely disenfranchised and losing all of their economic opportunities when you transition to this and making sure that it doesn't make things worse.
2: So we're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to pick up on that theme, uh, specifically the question of uh, development and climate change and how those two things in some ways could be at odds and maybe could be reconciled
0: support for this show comes from sylvan learning as a parent you want your child to have every opportunity but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge that takes a team now more than ever educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference that's why parents have trusted sylvan learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate At $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's SYLVAN29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners.
2: We have been talking about the problems with a clean energy transition created by energy producing states. And why that creates such significant barriers uh, towards, you know, preventing catastrophic warming. Uh, Now we want to talk about something that's sort of the flip side of this, also focusing on Nigeria. uh, Because Nigeria is the epicenter of global poverty currently. It has the most number of people living in extreme poverty of any country on the planet currently. And that means that it is an imperative for Nigeria to get economic growth going, and to get energy, which is hugely important in terms of, you know, getting the development engine going, uh, distributed to lots of different people around the country. The problem is that historically, that sort of thing tends to happen with fossil fuels. Countries use coal and they use gas to try to – Get their their industry going to power individual homes and to generally go up the development ladder, but if you do that, and and not just in Nigeria but also in the many other countries that are looking to lift millions of people out of poverty, it's pretty much game over for the climate. So the question becomes, how do you do development in a way that's compatible with a livable climate future? Uh, I'm not. Asking you, Alex, to uh, you know answer that question in one sentence, but like give us give us a little bit of an intro. <laughs> Alex, until, solve this yeah, big solve. global problem, <laughs> fix everything <laughs> in no, thirty no, no, seconds, please. Talk to us a little bit about about the situation in Nigeria in terms of power and electricity.
3: Yeah, gosh, if I had the answer, I feel like I'd be making more money than this job. Uh, <laughs> um, Fact check true. <laughs> so look. Being for especially since we have a lot of American listeners, I think of it a lot like this way. You know, there's a lot of concern about West Virginia, for example, right? It's a it's a state that which has a lot of different industries, but is heavily dependent on the coal industry and the coal mining. And so you have politicians who are saying, "Look, we need to diversify. We need to move to to a you know more sustainable future to new green technologies." And you have a state that is resistant to that. And why? You might disagree for, with their resistance, but the what's understandable is. Like, my, I have my livelihood. Like, this is what I know. This is what I'm trained in doing. This is the economy I've worked in for a while. This is the company I've worked in for a while. My family was in this industry. It's what I know how to do. And anyone to tell me to not do that is going to rankle me. Uh, not to say that the, the West Virginian experience is, is applicable worldwide, but it, I think it helps illuminate ideas when you think about Nigeria and other countries. Uh, here are uh, developed nations like the United States, um, China and others, saying, look, it is bad uh, to use fossil fuels. It is bad. You cannot develop the way we did, basically, because we made a mistake. You know, we used these this energy to grow our economy as quickly as possible since the Industrial Revolution. And uh, then we realized that we actually doomed the planet in doing so. And so you guys can't do the same. And I would be, I would rankle at that. Like, look, I know what my shortcut is, quote unquote, you know, uh, it is to use these industries to use uh, fossil fuels as we have them because we're going to need them. I got if I'm the Nigerian government, I got millions of people I got to you know protect and, and make sure they have food and jobs and all this. And, in, and if you're a Nigerian at this point, a lot of people there know just know the oil industry. They or they make uh, pipes for for oil or they know how to get things. Uh, you know, they just know how to work within that industry and, and, and industries that, that are born out of it. So now you're saying. Okay, to a bunch of these people. No, you need to invest in other technologies and learn a, a whole new skill set, and a whole and build a whole new sets of economies based on that. And that would require right putting in solar panels. That would require wind turbines. That would require uh, hydropower. Nigeria is right on the water, and that's all well and good. And that makes sense to a, to to an extent. But again, you would have to retrain a bunch of people and then you'd have to teach a bunch of folks how to do these pretty high-skilled jobs. And that is doable over time, but maybe it's not quick enough. And so then that's why you have, that's why I think that the heart of this problem is how do you lead to such a transition? And you know, in the US, you can think, okay, well, we can weather that storm. But in poorer countries, that you can't weather that storm because people want to develop now. People need food now. People need shelter now. They need a livelihood now. And so, you know how how you sort of square that circle is extremely hard in Nigeria, um, especially you know in a place that's now because of climate change, like losing lake beds, deep, deep, you know, losing forests, um, has aridity. Uh, it's hard to think about other industries that they could they could work off of. So, I, I'm sort of rambling now. I realize, but this is I because I, I think about this problem a lot. Is just you know this is what some some people call climate justice. It's like it is. It's kind of unfair. For the U.S. and others to say to to poor countries, like, you cannot develop the way we did. You know, follow our new lead. And again, I would rankle at that if I were in in another country situation. Be like, how dare you <laughs> tell me what to do at this point?
2: I, w- I wouldn't call it kind of unfair. I would call it, a, like, incredibly unfair. Like, fundamentally unjust, more accurately, right? Like, Nigeria, like, a lot of countries was colonized, uh, in this case by the British. And so you had, you you have large chunks of the world. That were not only made poorer relatively by the advances of Western countries economically using fossil fuels, but literally subjugated to them because of advances in technology and military and political strength that were underpinned by essentially dirty energy industries that allowed the West to advance economically so rapidly ahead of other countries. So we… In, in the global north exploited fossil fuels not only to make ourselves wealthy and then polluted the climate as a result unintentionally, but nonetheless it happened, but also used those resources to literally oppress and colonize people in countries like Nigeria. So I, I don't think it's just a question of like sort of general rote unfairness. I think it's a question of like fundamental structural injustice. That has created a deeply unequal world, and and in, in many, many, many different ways, and make and creates not just I think a sort of general it, it's a do-goody nice thing for Western countries to do something about it, but a really strict and clear moral obligation to help poorer countries pursue development, especially ones that were formerly colonized by your country.
1: I think there's another aspect to this that that kind of. Aims to tr- to try to be one of the solutions to this, and that's the idea of leapfrogging technology, right? Um, and so the, the concept is that you go from you know from not having you know energy infrastructure, you know from not using fossil fuels, and then it but instead of developing the same way as you know other countries did through the industrial revolution, right, through fossil fuels, manufacturing, etc., and then moving into more kind of advanced uh, you know forms of of economic growth and development. You just leapfrog over that and go directly to the current, you know, and, and you know, forward leading technologies, right? So and it's not just like an idea that like, what if you just skipped ahead and just did that? It may seem like, okay, well, that sounds all well and good, but won't that be expensive? But it turns out that like, according to the Asian Development Bank in China, it was, they found that it was already cheaper to install solar powered district heating than natural gas boilers. So, like, in many cases, the fact that these technologies have developed so much in many places has brought the cost down to the point that, in many cases, it may actually be cheaper to go directly to renewable energy sources, right? And I think there's no question that having access to energy, like, can lead to growth, right, economic growth. If you think of it just at the individual level, the amount of time that it takes for, you know. A woman or man to go gather a bunch of wood, start a fire to do all the cooking. It takes a lot of time out of your day that can be otherwise used productively when you could just turn on your gas stove or your electric you know, stove or however you have it heated. And that saves you time that enables you to do other things and, you know, including having jobs and things like that. So just at the personal level, like it's obvious that having access to to good energy and reliable energy is really important for economic growth. You can obviously extrapolate that to, you know, bigger industries, et cetera. You can't run giant companies if you don't have, you know, if you have power cuts happening every hour or so. You know, I think the idea of leapfrogging technology is is one way that a lot of countries are kind of thinking about it and thinking about how to, you know, go about, skipping over that usage part of the fossil fuels but again you still end up with the problem of the the exporting extractive countries who still have all that you know going back to the Nigeria example one of the ways that that some people in the government really want them to help increase you know people's access to energy in their own country is by exploiting their largely untapped coal resources right But again, like that seems to be going backwards, Like opening a bunch of new coal plants when everyone's trying to move ahead. So there's still that tension, right? But I think in the developing kind of side of economic growth, you know, finding ways to make some of those technologies more accessible, uh, cheaper, you know, bringing down the cost, making them more scalable is a way to help some countries kind of leapfrog over that beyond just, a like, a moral imperative of, you know, giving money to, to help fund these things. I think the actual technologies themselves could be really helpful. And at least that's the argument that, that a lot of people are making and that a lot of countries are trying to actually, you know, implement in some places. Yeah, I mean,
3: the, the bumper sticker here, just I think from what you said, is you, you need to make the costs of extraction or exporting, like, higher than using other technologies. And then basically right. once that switch happens— Then I think you start seeing, you know, the the floodgates open, um, you know, no pun intended on hydropower. And this is, I think, where governments can help. And especially, you know, richer governments can help. We could invest instead of necessarily just like American companies, we can invest in foreign companies. But even American companies, too. you know, or, you know, European companies or elsewhere, like, if, if they are able to produce breakthrough technologies that could conceivably change the way we do certain things, um, and that could be adopted elsewhere, that that's a possibility. I know a lot of people balk at this because one of the main sort of um, comebacks, and this usually comes from Republicans, is, but yeah, Obama failed when he invested in Solyndra, this like, you know, solar power company that, that went under. Okay, that's true, but in that same round of investments was a small little company called Tesla, uh, which now never, never heard of it. Yeah, uh. <laughs> like it was in that same batch, uh, and and so you know it's it's possible that you know, government investments can help here, and, and and I'm not a stand for Tesla at all, but in theory that it's it's made sort of electric vehicles cool, uh, and you could imagine electric vehicles, which are not a panacea, by the way, but still. Or better, um, if that becomes sort of more adopted, well, that could be adopted not only in the United States but in Europe and and in Nigeria and other in other nations. And so there's a private sector issue here too. I think there's sort of sort of two clear goals, which is one, again, the cost of extraction of fossil fuels need to be higher than than the cost of of renewables. And then the other is you just have to find as best a balance you can of development and pollution reduction. And that does not necessarily mean just moving to green tech. It could mean, you know, carbon capture um, if we are able to, to have a real breakthrough there. Um, you don't want to hinder development or at least you want to minimize the hindrance of development while you're also changing this because the, otherwise, you, you know, it, you're just dooming people um, in the short term for long-term game. And for some, that's okay. But sort of morally speaking, that's pretty monstrous. So I, I want to get a little bit more specific
2: because we've been talking you know, in, in a lot of generalities here, and it can seem a little abstract, but I think there are some concrete ways to look at the consequences of, of both poverty and energy poverty, per specifically in Nigeria, that will help clarify the stakes and the degree to which renewables actually are kind of a, a helpful solution here. So I was reading a paper about what would happen um, in terms of different scenarios of increasing energy access in Nigeria. And one of the points that the authors made is that a significant problem isn't energy in general, but specifically the lack of clean cooking equipment. So 94% of the Nigerian population, according to this paper, does not have access to clean cooking equipment. And so what that means is that people do things like burn wood inside and charcoal inside their houses. And there's a lot of evidence, and this is in another paper on renewables, transitions, and poverty, which I will also put in the show notes. I I really liked this one. is That's, like, really catastrophic for people because – and I'll quote from the paper. Indoor air pollution from unventilated cooking with fuel, wood, and charcoal is the fourth largest cause of mortality globally, contributing 4.3 million deaths a year, more than unsafe water, HIV, AIDS, or malaria. Um, This is a paper from 2016, so those numbers may be a little bit dated, but – It would be really, really, really easy in a country like Nigeria to take advantage of the fact that you can install renewable energies like solar on an individual or local basis and put it in people's houses to to power clean cooking and to give them access to electric stoves, for example. And that would tremendously reduce the burden of poverty on those 94% of Nigerians who do not have access to clean cooking materials again, according to this this other paper, um, and so that's that's the kind of problem that we're talking about when we talk about development and poverty. It's not just large scale. We're gonna build a huge power plant and then connect everybody to the grid. In a lot of rural places, again, like Nigeria, with, it has big cities like Lagos, but also large rural populations. Like it may not actually be efficient to build huge power plants. And Jen was talking about this a bit earlier, right? You can you can have these individual solutions that not only reduce the harms of poverty like mortality and illness and so on, but also enable people, because they're not dying and they're not sick, to pursue economic activities that help further the entire country's development process. So you can do that with clean energy. And coal may actually make this harder because, well, you can't burn coal inside your house. That's significant pollution. And coal-fired plants require hooking everybody up to a grid. So it's not a lose-lose situation. In fact, in some cases, renewables for development is a win-win.
1: Right. I think just kind of going back to the the broader historical kind of, you know, if you look at the, the way that developed countries got there, you know, through the Industrial Revolution, yes, there was, you know, millions of people lifted out of poverty and, you know, a lot of countries, including the U.S., became, you know, economic powerhouses, et cetera. But it's not like it wasn't dirty and really damaging the whole time and i don't mean just to the global economy but to the people who were doing that work right we talk about you know alex talked about west virginia and coal mining and like yeah there are a lot of people you know by my dad's side of the family is is from those parts and there are a lot of people who very much have their identity tied up in the coal mining industry but at the same time it's not like it's any secret and and many of those people are fully aware how absolutely devastating to health coal mining is to coal miners, right? Inhaling coal dust and getting lung diseases and things like that. So, you know, when you talk about, well, you know, we don't have the chance to go through that whole industrial period like you guys did, that's not fair. At the same time, it could be a very good thing to not have to go through a lot of that, you know, really dirty, destructive, you know, period and having the actual workers, right? Like if you're you're a worker you're a person who needs to have a job, right? It would probably be a lot, you know, healthier. And I personally would probably pick this if I had a choice to go into a coal mine and risk, you know, dying at the age of 50 uh, from having inhaled coal dust my entire career versus, you know, getting to work in a, you know, factory or a high-tech facility that manufactures solar panels, right? Like, it's a, it's obvious, which you would rather do. The question is, like, making those opportunities available, right and not just saying we're just going to rely on all this coal like it takes money it takes investment to do this and one of the things i just want to kind of add here you know we talked a little bit earlier about you know government investment alex was talking about cylindra and things like that and and picking winners and losers and right like there are a lot of people who are you know strong advocates of you know market economies and against the idea of governments picking winners and losers and saying that the market should decide. But that's never actually been how any of this worked, right? Governments have already been picking the winners for decades and decades, and they have been picking fossil fuels. So it's not like, oh, we need to worry about the government. Like, what if they pick, you know, a bad, you know, not a bad company. I don't, I don't know their financials of Solyndra. But like, what if they're wrong, right? Like, that's the, the concerns with the command economy, obviously. Like, what if they bet wrong and the, the government loses all its money, uh, that's bad. But at the same time, like that's literally what governments have been doing already with fossil fuel subsidies. And so trying to get that shift to just moving some of that funding toward more renewable energy is really important and doesn't mean that they're all of a sudden picking winners and losers. They're just picking a different winner and one that you know actually has a more sustainable future and potentially much less damaging to their own people. I'm remembering
3: that's just sparked that. I'm remembering college, you know, conversations about this, and I remember that the the general split was, or the, the general consensus in the classes, at least I attended, and I went to American University, so it, it leaned hard left. Um, but the general consensus uh, um, was to solve climate, you couldn't really have growth. That they were they were basically mutually exclusive. And I feel like what we've learned, you know, since I was in college is like, that's just not true. (laughs) Uh,
1: We've also invented the wheel since then. Right. That's
3: That's, 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 good to know. Yes, although you are older.
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm so much older than you. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Alex, I I do really want to
2: talk about this because degrowth, what you're describing has become... Uh, a particularly popular idea uh, Mm -hmm. recently because people are like, crap, well, when countries grow, they need to use more energy. And so the only thing to do is to stop growth, right? This is a disastrously bad idea. I agree. Right. And It's like it's hard to overstate how bad an idea it is. And looking at a country like Nigeria is, is really helpful, right? You can't stop growth in a country that's developing right now. Not only would it be horrifically unjust because, you know, the West got to grow, and they, they're they the ones who caused the climate crisis in the first place. But it also would be, like, even outside the sort of historical lens of justice and the immediate sort of consequentialist vision of justice, it would be terrible because millions and millions and millions of people would be stuck in extreme poverty forever. So degrowth advocates don't say you shouldn't grow poor countries. What they say is rich countries need to stop growing so the poor countries can grow and catch up. In theory, that sounds like it might be nicer. The problem, first, is that rich countries buy products from poor countries, and if you had to slow growth significantly in those countries, there would be a global economic meltdown, which would be very bad. Second, then you would lead to a significantly decreased standard of living for lots of people in rich countries because they would lose their jobs, and you would have a lot of people who were previously middle class who would be poor would be very, very angry about this. So it probably wouldn't be able to happen in the first place. Uh, And third the amount that you would need to slow down growth in the first quote-unquote first world if you want to allow for catch-up growth in the global south would be so significant that it just sort of boggles the mind, right? There's a an economist, Branko Milnovich, uh, who studies inequality, who looked at this question. And uh, Branko, his, he did some back-of-the-envelope math, and it just like it's staggering, the amount of growth that you would need to cut off. So as as popular as this idea is not as intuitive as it sounds to a lot of people, like global economic growth, that's just polluting the climate. Well, growth is the only thing historically that has ever ended extreme poverty. So I don't, it's not a realistic option to stop economic growth if you want to get rid of poverty, right? The question, and this is also, I think, related to the first topic that we talked about, is how you're going to help countries that depend on fossil fuels for economic growth in general via extraction or poverty reduction by increasing access to electricity to move on without tanking their own economies or or exacerbating climate change, which hurts them pretty directly. And there's there's only one answer. We've, we've mentioned it several times, which is that you need to have a significant amount of international support for their attempts to develop in a climate-friendly fashion. Uh, I think that we don't – discuss enough the scale of support that would be necessary or we talk about foreign aid as if it's something that uh is nice to do right that it's really great for wealthy countries to be so kind as to help out poor people we don't talk about it as a matter of justice which i think we should both in terms of historical and forward looking justice but also because Because the world is screwed if we don't get a handle on the climate problem. And the only way to do that with any kind of fairness to people who are struggling in extreme poverty right now is a green energy transition across the world. And the only way to do that is a massive, massive, massive global investment in green energy capabilities. Uh, I, I I think, as is often the case with climate, our public conversation is just too small to reckon with a problem that is existential
3: in scope. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I I find it. This is worldly, so I'll bring. I'll, you know, I have a downer here, which, <laughs> which is like you know we're going through a pandemic, uh, and it was supposed to be that something this big, this massive, this uh, this existential, was supposed to bring the world together and re, and, and, and and okay, we're going to cooperate, we're going to find you know common solutions to this problem, and we didn't see that. We saw, you know, vaccine nationalism. We saw vaccine diplomacy. We saw countries in it for themselves. Um, we're still seeing that, and that's on like the immediate threat, right? On the thing that that, that could hurt you, make you really sick today. Climate change is is, you know, ve- it's very existential, but it's longer term, and it's we're just like literally today having a conference of forty world leaders to go. Okay, well, how do we do this together? Perhaps or how do we set these kinds of targets? And like it's it's you know yeah it's better late than never, but like it's it's late. It's really late, and there's no evidence whatsoever that there's going to be some sort of global movement, global cooperative to solve this. Uh, If if you couldn't do it for the coronavirus, (laughs) I find it unlikely that you're going to do it for climate change. And so I'm pessimistic. I agree with you, Zach. The kinds of investments that are required to solve this for real, to handle all the aspects of this for real are mind-boggling in scale. And I, we're talking about, in the United States, a 50 to 52% emissions reduction by 2030, which, like, logistics and all that matter. I, I you know, I'm, I'm hearing mixed reviews whether it's aggressive, whether or not it's aggressive. But even so, you know, we're, like, we all agree, worldwide, you know, pollution, bad, solving climate change, good. But then this, <laughs> after that, everyone disagrees. Oh, major,
2: major, major asterisk. For right, Republican we all. Party in the United States. <laughs>
3: well, I guess I mean like the the majority of people, and Jair
2: Bolsonaro in Brazil, and a lot of European far right populists who are skeptical of climate
3: change. Right, I guess I'm just, just like, saying, the, yes, there are no, it's papers. true, it's true. But the the, the majority, I feel, of, of people and governments are are on board. But it's it's after that sort of general bumper sticker that we can agree on solutions. And at this point, we should have been far, far, farther along in this conversation than we are.
1: So I. I agree to some degree that rhymes, but I'm a lot more optimistic and not because I have a particularly Pollyanna-ish view of the world or of motivations of humans. I super don't. Pretty sure that's clear to anyone who's heard me speak for more than three seconds. But I think actually self-interest is a huge factor in helping drive some of this move toward more sustainable development and even... You know, spending money and foreign aid, you know, giving money to countries who need it to help move toward a you know more sustainable future. So for instance, you know, I mentioned earlier that the UK and the EU are giving, you know, lots and lots of money to countries, uh, India, Bangladesh, etc., also including Nigeria. And you know, I would love to think that governments just give billions of dollars to other countries out of the goodness of their heart, but that's not really how traditionally governments uh, operate. Um, But it is in, you know, very specifically in the interests of some countries, especially wealthier countries, to, you know, make sure that there aren't climate catastrophes and massive, you know, outflows of climate refugees and climate migrants and people who are fleeing, you know, increasingly impossible to live in regions of the world and coming into their own countries and their own regions, right? I think that is a huge impetus for a lot of uh, you know, governments to to think about, you know, funding development and things like that in places like Africa and places, you know, uh, in South America and, and in, in Asia that are especially vulnerable to climate change because that is a very, you know, serious threat to, you know, a, as governments would see it, a very serious threat to stability and, and the economy of those countries if you you know except a, a huge influx of migrants. So there's that. And I also think that we are actually seeing lots of cooperation in some ways, right? There are, you know, just today as we record this, Biden is convening a big climate summit of, you know, dozens and dozens of world leaders. You know, yes, that is some of their commitments that they make may not, you know, they may not follow through, just like with Paris. We were far behind where even the Paris commitments, you know, should be for for most countries. But at the same time like they're still coming together. They're still talking. A bunch of countries, right, you know, in advance of this have announced new kind of more aggressive targets. I think there is an effort to organize and at least have the conversations around, you know, these tough conversations about who needs to do the funding, which countries need help funding. So, you know, Nigeria is going to be involved in this summit. And I'm sure they are going to bring up the fact that, we would like to hit more aggressive climate targets, but we need some help. And the ability to come together in a forum and say that to the countries that are the ones who are able to provide that help, I think is really important. So I don't think it's quite as dire. And I also think, just to put a fine point on it, I think we are increasingly reaching a point where it is really difficult to deny climate change. I know people still somehow manage to do it, and that's their life. But, you know, countries, including the United States, are experiencing like daily the very real effects of climate change from you know increased heat and fires and more erratic weather patterns and sea level rise, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so I think there is, you know, Alex, I I think there is a more kind of global consensus. I agree with you that this is something that's really happening. It's not theoretical anymore. Right. It's not something I remember being a kid and like talking about it. And, you know, beyond like the ozone, the hole in the ozone layer, which was the thing that was really big when I was a kid. But like, because again, very old. Um, it was for me too. Don't um, worry. It was, okay. But it was always, you know, climate change was always for a long time talked about like global warming in the future, in the future. But like, we're not there anymore. We're in that that future right now. And so I think as the impacts become more immediate, and more pressing, I think there is going to be, you know, hopefully, you know, more of a movement to address it. And I think also, you know, a lot of young people are really fired up about this and don't discount young people when they want to do something. Yeah. I
2: I think to that point, I I, I mostly agree with Jen here for two reasons, though. One, I'm going to start with the one where I disagree, uh, which is (laughs) we can't wait until the impacts become more obvious, even more obvious than they are right now. Because by the time climate change is one of those problems that by the time it's happened, it's like too late. Right. right. All the all the bad things are happening. And so I, I you can't count on the momentum of events to change things on on their own. But I do think that the reason that you're going you could fairly expect to see investment in countries like Nigeria closer to the scale of what we need, at least from from the global north, is that it's become an increasingly significant thing ideologically to factions in Western countries. It's part of their identity that you need to do something about climate change, and part of this is this youth activism, and part of it is just a rising standard of living leading to more concerns about uh, what are called post-material values, which include uh, environmental concerns. So green parties in Europe are becoming increasingly prominent and significant, and as the name suggests right? Green parties are overwhelmingly concerned with the environment, among other things, right? There's sort of a, a new kind of left-wing party. We can bracket the rise of green parties for a future episode, except to say that a recent German poll showed them at the top of the, the race for the chancellorship, uh, which would be pretty remarkable, right? Because Germany is typically split between the Social Democrats and the Christian Democrats, the sort of center-left and center-right party. And so for the, the greens to come in, and uh, you know, win the, the largest vote share in the Bundestag would be really remarkable. Uh, and it's not only about environmental politics; it's also about the long term decline of social democratic parties, et cetera, et cetera. But the rise of green parties with a, a very heavy environmental branding indicates how significant the environment is becoming in terms of the in the minds of Western voters, at least to a degree, and how it'll become a priority for those countries to do something because it really, really matters to their voters on a deep level, or at least I hope. Um, and, and that's where we're going to leave you uh, for this week's Worldly. We've been talking for a very long time. as befitting our special Earth Week episode. And, you know, we're not the only show that's talking about climate change this week or other environmental problems. All our other different Vox Media podcasts shows are getting in on this game. So I'd really encourage you, if you're interested in these environmental issues, to, to go check them out. Um, Also, I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, um, for not only working on the episode, but literally dreaming about us the night before. As we referenced earlier in the show, that was not a joke. It did happen. Except me. Except you, Alex. Sorry, (laughs) sorry, buddy. Uh, I also want to thank Olufemi Taiwo, who's a professor at Georgetown who studies climate ethics and justice in the context of global economic arrangements. He helped me and us think through the different issues that we talked about in the show and provided us with some really helpful readings about Nigeria specifically. And I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, we're there, so check us out.